If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to the book of Philippians? I want to read once again chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the portion that we've been considering. Paul begins, So since there's encouragement in Christ, since you have comfort from the love of the Father, since you have participation in the Holy Spirit, since you have affection and sympathy from the Godhead, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, or among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Because Paul has such a deep love and affection for these Philippian believers, he wants them to enjoy the same joy that he is experiencing in prison. In our study of this letter to them, so far, he's laid out some ways for them to get that joy and to maintain it. In chapter 2, he now speaks of the absolute necessity in regard to the relationship, the inseparable relationship between unity that is produced by mutual humility that leads to joy. Last Sunday, we gave you the three letters, the three ideas, H-U-J, humility leads to unity, leads to joy. That's what he's getting across to them. Now, in speaking about humility, he does not leave them wondering what he means. He presents Jesus Christ as the greatest example of humility, a visible representation of what he's saying. He has already urged them to be obedient to a threefold directive. That is, they should manifest to one another the spirit of oneness and lowliness and helpfulness. That's the first four verses. Now, in order to underscore this exhortation and to indicate the source of the strength that they're going to get, what they need, he now points to the example of Christ. Jesus had a view to saving others and in doing so renounced himself and therefore attained to the glory that God had promised. Jeff Thomas, a pastor in Wales, says this, The Lord Jesus Christ has left us, we who are his disciples, the great example that we are to follow. Martin Luther said he is the great definition of a man, the proper man. That's why we have this section in this letter in this place. It seems that the church at Philippi was being threatened by division, fragmentation, and vain glory. That worldly spirit was ruining their fellowship. And so Paul is pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ as the divine model for them to follow. In verse 5, he says, have the same attitude, have the same mindset of Jesus. Then he reminds them particularly in ways they can emulate that example. 
It is not trying to emulate the power of Jesus, the power that he exercised in turning water into wine or raising the dead, but rather they should follow his self-abasement, his self-renunciation, who, according to Paul, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but rather made himself nothing. This great statement of the incarnation of the Son of God, Paul is bringing to bear on these people. Most of them were most willing to let it be known that they were aware of their exact status or rank or position in the church. The founding members wanted everybody to know that they were there first. The wealthy slave owners wanted everybody to know that they had power, the power of the purse. The elders wanted everyone to know that they ruled the church. Others pulled the missionary or deacon card to talk about their rank. Even women made their place known, as we'll see about in chapter 4. Everyone knew about their place, and they were also willing and very happy to let you know that they knew. Back in the 18th or 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once had an illustration. Now, you have to, you have to think British pounds when, when you read this, and I'll interpret it for you. But here's what Mr. Spurgeon said. In class-ridden England, a five-pound note, which today is about $6.80, will not speak to a pound coin, $1.36. And a pound coin will not notice a 20-pence piece, about a quarter. And a 20-pence piece will sneer at a 5-pence, about 8 cents. And a 5-pence will not acknowledge the existence of a penny, which is a penny. You get the pecking order there? He says, now let's apply that to Christians. It should not be so among believers. Paul is addressing these tensions in Philippi, and he takes their new word for me, sniffiness. Can you see that? The sniffiness, where the nose is raised looking down at other people. He will not. He takes their sniffiness about their station and their rank, pleading with them that they might be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, considering others better than themselves. It is to encourage such an attitude that the apostle reminds them of what Jesus did. He speaks in the loftiest terms of the work of Jesus Christ. Well, we're working our way during this, uh, these last few Sundays in verses 5 through 11. Remember, verse 5 talks about a mindset, have the same attitude or mindset of Jesus. And then in verse 6, he takes us back to the past. And we say eternity past, and that's with quotation marks. There is no such thing. That's an, that's an oxymoron. If it's in eternity, it's not past. It's always. So, But he takes us back to before time. And he tells us something about Jesus to highlight, to enhance his condescension and his humility. Before his incarnation, Jesus Christ existed with God and was identical with God. He uses that word form, who being in the form of God. He was God both inwardly and outwardly, and he always will be. He shared to the full the divine nature. And he was clothed with the splendor of God that has always surrounded the person of God. At his incarnation, however, Jesus laid aside, now please listen, the outward glory. A glory that would have made it impossible for human beings to approach him. He laid that aside and took the form of a servant. And what remained was God's glory in the inward sense. For even while he was in the flesh, Jesus Christ was still God and retained all 
of the divine nature, so says James Montgomery Boyce. Yet, even though that's true, verse 6 tells us, he did not hold on to that. He didn't grasp it with a closed fist. A man by the name of Reinecker suggests, quote, perhaps the meaning is that Christ did not use his equality with God in order to snatch or gain power and dominion, riches and pleasure or worldly glory. Now in verse 7, as we continue on, he gives us three more descriptions of the actions of Jesus that show his incredible humility, an example that we should follow in his steps. Notice, first of all, in verse 7 what it says. He emptied himself. Now this is not literal, this is metaphorical. It carries the idea of rendering something void, or ineffective, or powerless. He did not empty himself of his divinity. He did not stop being God. His Godhood remained intact. Moreover, he did not exchange his divinity for humanity. He willingly, voluntarily renounced or set aside his divine prerogatives and privileges for the time he was born in Bethlehem until the time he returned back to his father and received that glory once again. He embraced, says Mr. Johnson, the role of insignificance and impotence by assuming the form of a slave. He did not abandon his divine might and knowledge, but what he did was he added to his divine nature a human nature, limited though it was like ours, but unstained by Adam's sin. Jesus took our human nature, but he did not take our sin. Other than the Mount of Transfiguration, his divine glory was by and large not visible to physical sight. John Gill says it this way, Though he took that which he did not have before, which is his humanity, he lost nothing of what he'd always had, his divinity. The glory of his divine nature was covered. It was veiled. It was out of sight. And though sometimes some rays and beams of that glory broke out through his works and miracles, yet his glory as the only begotten of the Father was beheld by only a few. The form of of God in which he was, was hidden from them. They considered him really just a man, a mere man, as we read in Psalm 22, even as a worm and no man at all, and to be thus treated and thought of by people. He voluntarily subjected himself, even though he was infinitely great and glorious. Now, he did not assume his deity by plundering or seizure. He was not cast into this role as a human by force. It was his own act, his own voluntary deed. He willingly assented to it. He willingly laid aside, as it were, his glory for a while to have it veiled and hidden and to be reckoned and treated as nothing, a mere man, even to be considered by some of his enemies as being possessed by a demon and not even being God. Gill ends his section here by saying this, and this is something to ponder. Oh, wondrous humility, astonishing condescension. Think with me for just a moment. 
What did Jesus lay aside when he came to this earth? We could go on for a little while this morning in a class, but let me mention two of them, may I? Jesus laid aside the riches of heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. He who was rich became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Hendrickson describes that this way. He gave up everything, even himself, his very life. So poor was Jesus, he was constantly borrowing something. A place for his birth, a house to sleep in, a boat to preach from, an animal to ride on, a room in which to institute the Lord's Supper, and finally a tomb to be buried in. Birds of the air have nests. The foxes have a hole in the ground, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. More than that, he took upon himself a debt, a very heavy debt. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the debt of our sin. Jesus took upon himself that debt voluntarily. Not only the riches of heaven, but also the glory that he enjoyed in heaven as well. Listen to his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me once again in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was ever created. He left eternal delights to descend to a realm of misery. He left the domain where he was solemnly adored by all the angelic beings to come to this earth where he is and was, as Isaiah says, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He emptied himself. He took the place of nothingness so that he could do what he did. Secondly, in verse 7, notice he not only emptied himself, But he emptied himself, and on your outline, I've highlighted the word by. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's the key way that he demonstrated his emptying of himself. His coming as a slave, and let me just stop here and remind you what that word is in the Greek. That's the word doulos. We met that right at the get-go in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Paul Servant of Jesus Christ. That's the Greek word doulos. It means bond slave. It finds its roots back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, you remember. Right after the giving of the law, there were some rules given. And one of the first rules was this. If you have a slave who comes to you and he serves you the allotted amount of time, you have to let him go free. If he came with a wife and children, okay. If he came and found a wife and children, they stay behind, he leaves. But if he comes up to you and says, listen, you know what? I like serving you. You're a good master. You're a good boss. I don't want to leave. Then they went through a ceremony and they would take an awl and pierce the bottom of his ear. And from that point on for the rest of his life, he would be known as a bond slave. People would see that hole in the ear and say, that guy's a slave of so-and-so. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. He's a willing bond slave of God. That's what Jesus Christ assumed. He became a slave, a doulos. That describes how he emptied himself. And please remember this also was voluntarily. He was not obliged. He was not forced to be in the form of a slave. 
He appeared as one in human nature and was really such a servant. Then who did He serve? He served His Father. He serves still His people. As I got to thinking about this, my mind began to wonder, do you realize He served His brothers and sisters? Teach that to your children. He served His brother, his half-brothers and sisters, and He had brothers and sisters. He served His parents. He served His neighbors. I found this. He served His customers. In the carpentry shop, Jesus served His customers. He served His disciples, and as you read through the Gospels, He even served His enemies. His whole life was characterized by serving. Thomas and Johnson both bring this out. They say, so how did He come when He came? Did He come as Superman? Did He come as an emperor with a vast entourage and army? Did He come as a golden-tongued prophet who could make people weep or laugh at His will? Did He come as a monarch? Did He come as a wealthy noble in an estate house? No, no, a thousand times no. Paul says that when Christ came to this earth, having made Himself nothing, He took the very nature of a slave. Do you realize that a slave is lower than a servant? A slave has no rights whatsoever. There is no lower position to be assuming by anyone. The sovereign master of the world and the universe stoops to become a slave. Now please understand, I need to clarify this more than once, he did not exchange the form of God for the form of a servant. He took the form of a servant while still remaining in the form of God. And a fellow by the name of Weist, who has a lot of work in the Greek language, reminded us, this is what makes our salvation possible. Jesus is the perfect Savior as man and as God. And both of those things were necessary for someone to become our Savior. And He fulfilled both obligations, both responsibilities, both of those duties. Jesus came as a servant, not as the Lord. Even though He was and He is the Lord. Are you getting a headache trying to think about that? It's a mystery. He gave Himself for others, even though all of creation should always be giving to Him. He was God, living out a truly human life. One commentator said He became a servant. He willingly left the splendor of heaven for the smell of a stable. He left the company of angels for the company of men. He who was omnipresent took upon Himself the limitations of humanity. What a dramatic distance Jesus traveled from heaven to the cross, from divine robes to rags, from being served to serving. How far indeed from the golden streets of heaven to the cobblestones of the Via Dolorosa, from the songs of heaven's chorus to the cries of an angry mob. What a distance He traveled from heaven's throne room to Bethlehem's manger, from being exalted to being executed. If you take just a few moments and think about those things, certainly one of the questions that's going to come to your mind is, why? Why would he do that? Well, I know he was being obedient to his father. I know that he was honoring the covenant of redemption 
made before the foundation of the world. But for you and me, why did he do it for us who know him as Lord and Savior? Because he loved us. And the more we understand our unloveliness, the more we will appreciate the answer to that question, why? And you know what? This is at the heart of what it means to follow Christ. This is the evidence of being a genuine child of God. It means to lose our lives so that we can save them according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. It means to be emptied of ourselves in order to be filled with Him and His passion for others. It means to be like Jesus. In my reading, I found this. It's no wonder that so many people in our day love the health and wealth Christianity. They love this health and wealth gospel, this prosperity gospel. You know why? Because it's all about getting and nothing about giving. It's all about serving me instead of me serving others. It's all about God obeying me instead of me obeying God. Our fallen sinful nature is not interested in being emptied. We want to be filled. We are more interested in becoming something or someone than in becoming nothing and no one. It runs contrary to our fallen sinful nature to become less so that others might become more. And yet, if we're going to be like Jesus, we must become servants, allowing others to become more at our expense and not gritting our teeth and, and taking it under the breath as it were. And, if it's got to do it, then i got to do it. But to do it with a willing heart and a willing spirit. So, if we're going to follow the example of Jesus, humility leading to unity, leading to joy, if we're going to follow that, then the first thing we have to do is have the right mindset. We need to have a willingness to give up my rights for other people. And folks, that ain't easy. Because just about the time you've determined by your grace, dear God, I'm going to do it, you're going to be tempted, and the old nature is going to rear its ugly head, and you're going to join his side, and you're going to find yourself asking God for forgiveness later. It's called sanctification. It's called growing in grace. It's called fighting the flesh. Secondly, according to this verse, it involves becoming less so that others can become more. And Jesus manifested this, first of all, by emptying himself, proving the emptying of himself by taking the form of a servant. And that leads us to the third description in verse 7. Finally, he was made in the likeness of men. Please notice that. Being born or made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, we'll repeat that at the beginning, but we'll get to that next week. John Gill said he was made like unto sinful men. He was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans chapter 8. And he was treated as a sinner and numbered among the transgressors, Isaiah 53. He was likened to men, the most mean and abject of men. Those who were poor, those in the lower life, those counted with the least esteem and accounted among men by any other reckoning. Hendrickson says this, and I want to quote this because it's so good. He says in here, Paul continues and became like human beings. Literally, it's translated this way. In the likeness of human beings having become. When Christ took the form of a servant, 
He who from all eternity had the divine nature and continues to have it throughout all of eternity took upon himself human nature. Accordingly, the divine person of Jesus now has two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. But in assuming that human nature, he did not take the condition that Adam had before the fall, not that. He doesn't even have the condition that he has now when he came. And he didn't have the condition that he will have for all of eternity when he comes to be revealed once again. He took the fallen, weak, limited condition of human beings, burdened with the results of sin. Surely that human nature was real, and is so far just like that other human beings. But though it was real, it differed. Now get this distinction. It was real. It was like unto us with two exceptions. Number one, it was joined to his divine nature. I got the word mystery written in my column. I don't understand that. One person, two natures. Divine and human. The Son of God. But more than that, it means this. Even though he was burdened with the results of sin, he did not take upon himself actual sin. That's very important to remember because our Lord Jesus Christ, when he gave his life, as Hebrew writer says in chapter 7, he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. He asked his accusers in the Gospel of John, which of you can accuse me of any sin? And there must have been dead silence because not well. They can accuse him of it, but justifiably there was nothing that Jesus Christ ever did that was like sin. Likeness, yes. Similarity, yes. Sin, no. Now, a fellow by the name of McLeod said this, and I hadn't thought about this until I was studying it. He said, probably, Paul here is emphasizing here what Christ looked like, what, what people saw. I'm sorry, this is a personal conviction. I don't like to look at any pictures of Jesus that men paint. They ain't got a clue. Before the cross, especially on the cross, and I wouldn't judge anyone's heart, but I'm, I'm, I'll just be quiet. I don't like them. How would you have any idea? The Bible says you couldn't pick Jesus out in a crowd. McLeod goes on, if you'd seen him, Paul says, he wouldn't have turned any heads. There wasn't a halo. There wasn't a glow about him. There was no shining face. I don't suppose he was conspicuously elegant or handsome or that he had those attributes the glossy magazines commend to us today as the archetypal masculinity as we walk through the grocery stores. He was just a man. Just a man. There was nothing to betray who he was. Now, I hope that doesn't sound irreverent. <laughs> I hope it doesn't sound blasphemous. It's the truth. He had no form or comeliness that we should behold him. The glory of his Godhead was veiled in that. Again, Mr. Wells from Wales reminds us that the Bible is obsessed with the material world, with earth and air and water and human bodies, not just our souls. And that's what you meet in the incarnation. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. He's carried in her womb for the normal period of embryonic development. He emerges from her womb as a baby. 
by the way, this Christmas, if you sing, and we often do in my household or where I'm at, we sing that wonderful Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Don't you? Isn't that a great song? Second verse says this, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's woman, in this next phrase, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The Apostle John reflects on this truth, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have handled and touched, Him we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life. It's that kind of incarnation that we're talking about here. With a head of hair that a woman could anoint with oil with feet that could be wet with tears, feet that could be driven by nails to a cross. It was a warm, physical, material body that Jesus had. He got hungry, He got thirsty, He had desire, He got weary, He had pain that neither computers, robots, or ghosts experience. Jesus' physique and His physiology were similar in every respect to you and me. Flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, Listen to this. He could have donated his blood. Or his bone marrow. Or one of his kidneys to a suitable sibling. And then somewhat humorously, but still getting the point across, he says, when a man thrust a spear into his side, he didn't explode or go pop because he was nothing but an appearance, a skin of manhood. He was a real man. And out came blood and water. You know where that came from? It came from the pericardium sac around his heart. He had a human heart with all of the parts, but no sin. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Now, John Piper in one of my readings recently said he used to sit under the ministry. I think it was his father, but I'm not sure. But he would leave that service and he would write three letters. G-B-H. You know what that stood for? Good. But how? In other words, here it is. This is God's truth. But he would walk out of that very much like I did for much of my growing up life. I would listen to some tremendous preaching, and I had the privilege of doing that. Not touting my father, but my father was a great preacher. But the one thing that often concerned me, and he fell into that trap and realized it in his ministry, he would preach the wonderful glories of Jesus Christ and the responsibilities of the Christian, and then he would leave it. And I often said to my wife, Honey, that is a, that's wonderful truth, but how am I supposed to put that into practice as a husband, as a father, as an employee, as a neighbor? As a, how do I, what do I do with it? So my question to us this morning is, what does this all mean to me? If this is true, what do I do with it? Well, you have on your outline two verses of Scripture. You can look them up if you'd like. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says, Therefore, speaking of Jesus, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In his humanity, he was the perfect 
sacrifice for our sins. More than that, the verse goes on, for because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help anybody who's being tempted. Chapter 4 and verse 15 of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. A young man at the age of 18 who only lived three more years, name was Michael Bruce, wrote about Jesus as our great high priest these words. These are profound words from an 18-year-old. Quote, Our fellow sufferer yet retains a fellow feeling of our pains and still remembers in the skies his tears and agonies and cries. In every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part. He sympathizes with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief. What does that mean? It means this. By experience, Jesus has known our sorrows and our sadnesses. You can never say, Christian friend, nobody understands. You cannot say that. In every point, he was tempted. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We cannot say that. He has known the treachery of a friend. Has someone betrayed you? He's known the pain of burying a loved one and bereavement. He has known misunderstanding and rejection and false accusations. He has known terrible physical pain and unimaginable psychological and spiritual agonies. And so He feels for us. He knows what we're going through, what marvelous compassion He has gained by being a human being and walking through those things. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by Him because He ever lives to make intercession for them. And his praying is an informed praying, full of pathos. From the right hand of the majesty on high, he can contemplate the day-to-day problems of his people, and he can say this like no one else, I've been there. I've been in their nature. I've been with their frailty. I understand the sensitivity. And without any other resources but two things, the promises of God and the Holy Spirit's power, I endured them. And I went through them. And therefore, this is the old King James. I can't go back to anything else. That's my, that's my mind. He's able to succor, S-U-C-C-O-R, to hold up and to enable, to help those who are being tempted. You know the song, No One Understands Like Jesus? It's an old hymn. Some of you younger people may not know that. Ah, it's a beautiful song. Got wonderful words. No one understands like Jesus. But He does understand. So what shall we say to these things? What's the conclusion? What's the applications to us? Well, just to remind you, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger 2,000 years ago, He laid aside at the throne of God His, and I quote, His divine paraphernalia, His divine accoutrements, and His heavenly insignia. And He came to this earth to experience life as a man, fully man without sin, culminating at Golgotha and Gabbatha and Gethsemane, and the tomb. Do you remember what Pilate said at his trial in John chapter 19? Most significant. Sometimes we just kind of read over them. John chapter 19. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smacked him. They hit him with their hands. 
Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you can know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Do you remember what Pilate said next? Please don't forget this in light of our sermon today. Behold the man. Behold the man, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, why would he do that? Well, unfathomable, indescribable, and selfless love for lost sinners like us. He came and possessed the attitude and mindset of a servant, a humble servant, and he manifested that attitude with selfless actions. Though he was God, he did not use that for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of a man. Such humility such condescension. Now here's the question for you and me today. Do I want joy to characterize my life? Living legacy members, Christians, people, do we want joy to characterize this church? It's only going to happen if we dwell together in unity. And unity cannot be present without humility. Every one of us taking that challenge and that charge upon our hearts. Am I willing to be less so others can become more? I don't like it when the Holy Spirit says, Okay, Ed, why don't you put this into practice in your own life? So this week, perhaps more than ever, do you drive down the road, particularly if you're coming down, is it um, 283 and you're coming down to get on, no, you're coming down 83 to get on to 283 and you're all at construction, so you've got to go around that curve, and there's people coming up from here, coming down like this, and so there's two trying to merge? You have to pray for me because I'm probably more sinful than you are. But I'm driving along on this side trying to get in. And I see this dude coming down this way. You know my first thought? If you think you're getting my space, you ain't having it. Now, I didn't say that out loud, but I'm thinking the Spirit of God says it's not your space. You're, you're preparing all week long about serving. Why don't you practice it? Now, I've got to put this into practice. Now, please don't ask me because I'll probably have to say I failed a hundred times, but what I should do, are you ready? Under normal circumstances, I should say, is that ridiculous? If I have a servant's mindset, am I not going to serve him or her, whoever they are, and let them in first and quit trying to grab that space and possibly causing an accident? Is that too nitpicky? Is that too bottom line? I don't know about you. But the Lord rebuked me for that, and I hope to be able to put that into practice, not by letting people merge in, but also by my relationships with people during the week, serving others. Humility leads to unity, leads to joy. Perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. Let me remind you of something, or tell you for the first time, if you've never believed on Jesus. Jesus Christ became a man to live and die for unworthy sinners. Why? So that they might have forgiveness of sin, a right standing before God, and a home in heaven forever. I close with 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made known, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might have life through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. My friend, if you're not a Christian, 
bow before Him. He came to serve lost people and to save them that they might be servants of the Most High God. Let's pray.